This is the second part of our three-part conversation with Editor-in-Chief Corey DeVoe of iLife. He is on fire. It's spectacular. You're going to continue loving this. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, Life-Enhancing, Paradigm-Rattling Conversations with Cutting-Edge Thinkers, Contemplatives, and Activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. Gosh, there's so many directions we can go. And if you have one you want to go in, John, by all means do. I have I have many. Well, I just want to add a couple of things. First of all, what you were saying really touched me, Corey, that Ken has always been so kind to me. And I can't speak for everybody else's experience, but you know, I'm just like this, I don't know, kid out of the backwoods of Texas or something. And he's always answered every email, answered every question, and been very generous with his time and supported. And of course, I wrote a book on integral recovery using Ken's mm-hmm. map. And I worked on that in that field for 20 years. That's how I made my living. And I think it helped quite a few people. And Ken never asked for money, didn't want any control. He didn't want a piece of the action. None of that. Just very supportive and very kind and very human. And, and when Ken, you know, when he's not kenning or when the fire hose is not on or that whatever teaching, he's just a, he's a good guy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he had troubles growing up, you know, and he, like the rest of us, he's very, very human. And and the other thing is, Roger, you've had a unique experience. I mean, in perspective, because you knew Ken before Ken was cool, or maybe when he was first discovered, <laughs> he wrote his Spectrums of Consciousness. Yeah. God knows how many years ago, and you invited him to come and stay with you with your wife, Francis Vaughn, in your home in California. And uh, and you've been there ever since. And I know he loves you deeply, and you're one of his best friends in the world. So that's a extraordinary place to uh, to be and gives you insights and perspective that not all of us have. Yeah, and I feel very privileged to have to watch the unfolding of Ken and his vision and this magnificent gift of the integral vision. I like I like that word vision for this because it yes it's a theory, yes it's a worldview, yes it's a map, etc. And it's also a vision which calls us to calls us to to uh, to live it and become it and embody it. Always actually loved, you know, one of the one of the the terms that we use for a certain kind of integral thinking, which is vision logic. I've mm. always loved that phrase, and you'll see that I'm being a little bit strategic here because I just opened an art studio called Vision Logics <laughs> ah, <very laughs> for, for this for this exact reason. Because you know, one thing I love about that term is it really does marry both. It marries the vision and the logic. It feels like it's speaking to both sides, you know, sort of both hemispheres of the brain in a sense, even though I don't think there's any real science supporting left brain versus right brain. I think a lot of that's been debunked. But in terms of metaphors, one thing I liked about vision logic is it really does kind of pull together sort of either side. Like it's not just abstract and airy fairy and, you know, illumination, but there's also the logic piece like this. There's a grounding, there's a, a something verifiable here. There's yeah, and that's what integral thinking has always felt to me. It always has that had that kind of geometrical kind of capacity to it. It's like you're you begin to feel how your mind is sort of consciously or unconsciously kind of chunking big ideas together. And it almost feels visual in a certain kind of way. Like I can feel 
the geometry of my own consciousness and the geometry of the knowledge that I've, you know, been able to accumulate in my life, as well as all the knowledge out there, you kind of get this, this, this visual sense of it all fitting together in a very, you know, in a way that feels, I don't know, gives me the same hit that like a, a beautiful piece of art does. You know, if I'm looking at a piece of art and you just, everything just for that moment, everything just flows, there's a flow to it. And the body mind drops because of just, you're overwhelmed by the staggering beauty of what you're looking at. I often feel that way about the integral model itself. Beautifully said. And and while the primary emphasis perhaps of the integral theory is on the is on the good, true, and the beautiful, on the true, it does have a beauty to it. And you I think we each of us uh, here and so many of the, of our listeners respond to that beauty. Yes. And and also has the good, as you implied, saying, yes, this is all in the service of alleviating suffering and enhancing well-being. So yeah. they come together in a very beautiful way. And I think you, and perhaps more at this particular stage, you're referring to so-called vision logic. Corey, you've been really so creative and innovative in the ways you've applied and illuminated integral theory. And one of the things I love is the way you actually came up with video clips from different movies mm -hmm. to exemplify and demonstrate specific stages. And since you emphasized vision logic, perhaps you'd like to situate that within the developmental spectrum and just say, could you say something about, for example, a video clip or a movie clip you picked to exemplify that? <laughs> so I, I picked some funny clips for the integral stage, actually. Probably clips that there's one clip in particular that's probably not appropriate for us to play in a wholesome family show such as this because it comes from Team America, which was created by the South Park guys. And there's one clip that's just hilarious and very, very profane. <laughs> so don't watch it with your kids around. But I feel like it just kind of nails some of the stage differentiations we've been talking about so far. But yeah, again, now as I was talking about earlier, there's just something about the power of using reference points that we're already familiar with. You know, that was one of the main things I tried to do in that sort of presentation of, of film clips going up and down the, the different stages of development. I try to make sure that like, you know, the vast majority of the movies on that page are ones we've all seen, right? We've all seen Jurassic Park. We've all seen Conan the Barbarian. We've all seen, you know, A Few Good Men and Lord of the Rings. And I'm trying to think of what other ones I have in there, Hatch Adams. And, you know, these are big mainstream movies. And, you know, one of the things I try to clarify in the presentation is, you know, I'm not saying that the movie itself can be pegged to a particular stage of development. It'd probably be a boring movie if that was true, right? Any good piece of drama or literature or what have you is going to have, you know, it's going to have multiple stages conflicting and multiple types, and you're going to have all sorts of different motivations and all that. But I think what we're able to do is really focus in on a particular scene and look at the ways it's expressing one of these critical qualities of thinking or of leadership or what have you that we find at each of these stages. And to me, it just becomes a tremendously effective way of communicating a lot of complexity right? That comes with integral meta theory itself. You're communicating a lot of complexity in a way that does not feel like you're doing homework and eating broccoli, 
You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's fun. It's a fun project to be able to see how, you know, this, this meta, this big, beautiful meta theory actually shows up in all of these cultural creations that we're constantly surrounded by. I hope to do something similar with Ken talking about music and, you know, can we talk about music from the perspective of stages of development and different quadrants and all of that? Because, you know, again, one of the biggest points for me is it enhances my actual enjoyment of art as well as helping teach some of these integral theories. It's also making the art more beautiful to me because I can kind of, I can position it and I can understand it and I can kind of lose myself in it a little bit more, which is, which is, I think, powerful. You know, again, it's, it's, we're so, we as a society, I don't think there's ever been a society in all of history that's been more thoroughly entertained <laughs> than we are, right? It's like, we're just a wash in this stuff. And there's something cool about being able to, you know, take all the products of our culture and arrange it in such a way that like, well, here it is, here's the spiral of growth and development. And it's using words and reference points and symbols that we're already familiar with. So it's not a lot of heavy lifting to show someone, well, here's what the green postmodern stage is. As soon as you watch these three or four clips, you'll get it. You'll just, it'll, it'll click. Beautiful. Yeah. And I also love the way you've applied in the integral perspective, vision, model, theory to a variety of con contemporary issues. And I think this is very illuminating, very helpful. You know, we are racked as a society and increasingly as a civilization by increasing polarization and conflict around a variety of, of social issues. And for the most part, it seems like those issues never get resolved. Debates devolve into hostility and no one convinces anyone except that they have to become more entrenched into their own position. But, and one reason for that is there's no appreciation of that people are talking past each other. They're That's defining, right. defining issues in different ways. They're looking at, looking at them from different perspectives. They're even looking at them from different developmental stages. Sure. And I love what you've done with a couple of, with a number actually of really difficult social issues. So, and you have a series, the integral social justice or social, integral social justice. Integral justice warrior. Justice Warrior, yeah. And I'd love to have you talk a little bit about that project. Yeah. So, uh, so we're actually talking about sort of two different series here, and I can kind of briefly talk about both of them. So Integral Justice Warrior is a series, a monthly series that I co-host with Mark Fischler, who has, again, just become one of my absolute closest, dearest friends over the last several years. I, I, I love that guy so much. He's, he's just such a cuddly brilliant mutant <laughs> and, I, and i mean that in the kindest way possible and i love him so much and i should say that he's also a, a professor of law and constitutional law in particular and some very beautiful insights into particular contemporary legal situation and the issues thereof so you two are a great team yeah it really love stepping into the kitchen with him and making new meals for our audience and yeah, and it's a very, you know, what I love about having a show like that and a platform like that is, you know, a lot of the times we don't know what we're going to talk about, what we're going to do with the show until a day or two before the show. And it's sort of like, 
what what's what's weighing on you right now? And we we'll always do a check in. We'll we'll you know what headlines might we want to talk about? What sort of cultural dynamics within the justice conversation do we want to do we want to talk about? And I think that it gives us a lot of latitude where we can we can feels like we're free to talk about just about anything. We have a very I think receptive audience that you know allows us to avoid that feeling that I think a lot of people have these days of like sort of I need to walk on eggshells uh, in order to talk about really challenging and difficult yep. conversations. I don't want to you know if I say this it's going to offend half my audience, but if I don't say this, the other half of my audience might be offended. We don't really have those kinds of problems with the integral audience, which is which is which is wonderful. So. I think that allows us to kind of plumb the depths together in really in really interesting ways. And we've done great shows on, you know, what's wrong with policing in America as as being one. We've talked about oh, gun rights and gun control. You guys did like a six hour conversation. I thought it was brilliant, brother. And Thank I think you. I shot you an email afterwards because this is something that's got us so divided. And it's just both sides are absolutely certain that they are right. And yeah. you showed together you guys showed understanding of both perspectives and it just somehow loosened it up yeah. and it was very useful and, and a brilliant bit of of, of integral of theory and practice and, and uh, i, I appreciate doing. that i appreciate that and mark and i have done a few episodes on that the big one which might be the one you're talking about i'm not sure but the big one was actually so the other series that i do that has that means the world to me is this ongoing series with ken wilbur which we call the ken show Yep, which yep. is a little bit tongue in cheek because Ken show means a spontaneous spiritual awakening, which I think any given episode of a show with Ken offers that to, to someone in our audience. And it's been my absolute honor and privilege to produce that show with Ken. We're up to, we've, we've recorded over 90 hours altogether, I think in the Ken show, and we have no sign of slowing down anytime soon. Our most recent one was Art and Artificial Intelligence, which was a really fascinating, rich conversation. The one you're talking about, I think, is, is the title that Wicked Problems and Violence. And it was, it was, I think it was, I think it was actually something like eight hours long, yeah. which is, which is incredible, right? Like that's, that's kind of too long. <laughs> like, I was always for- excited to get back to it, Corey. Wow, I've got more of this and I was sad it ended actually. So you well, guys was, just let it roll. That was the nice thing about about <laughs> A, doing it with Ken, B, doing it in the structure where we did, where basically what we did is we took Ken's four quadrants and and in producing the show, I tried to come up with factors, critical factors in each of these four quadrants that couldn't be reduced to other factors, you know, elsewhere. So there's cultural- and, and Corey, can we just say, can you just say for anyone who's not integral, just, just a couple of words about the quadrant? Thank you. I asked you earlier to pause me if I get too far into jargon <laughs> and you just did. So that's good. So Ken's four quadrant map is basically getting back to what we we're talking about earlier. It's just a handful of polarities. The idea is that everything in this universe that, you know, that is a whole contains both exists as an individual and it exists in a collective of other individuals like it. So there's no such thing as an individual cell that is not also part of a society of cells. There's no individual animal that's not part of a species, right? You got to look at both of those. So that's one of the one of the polarities of the four quadrants. The other is interior and exterior, subjective and objective. So when we put these together, it gives us four sort of dimensions of experience. So we have the the interior of the individual, which looks like the inside of my mind right now as I'm trying to think of ways to describe the four quadrants. 
right? There's the exterior of the individual. So that's the Corey that you're, you know, you guys are looking at on the screen and listeners are hearing my voice. You're hearing it objectively. That's, you know, it's not my mind. That's my brain, for example. So that's the exterior side. And then there's the collective interior, which looks like culture. Here is what we look like from the inside, right? So this can include anything from shared beliefs, mutual understanding, common cultural tropes that kind of symbols that kind of bind us together as a people. And then we can look at the collective from the outside. And those look like systems, whether we're talking about information systems, communication systems, plumbing systems, anatomical systems, what have you. So the, the major idea here is that we have these four dimensions to every occasion. We have sort of a mind, a brain, a culture, and a systemic society is what it looks like for human beings, for example. So these are these are the four quadrants that Ken uses to sort of organize all of reality as we see it. So, you know, we, we can talk about how, you know, where physics and biology fits in versus where psychology and spiritual awakening fit in versus where culture studies and women's studies and anthropology and, you know, where those things fit in and system theory, chaos theory, engineering, math, science, all of these have sort of a different location in the four quadrants. So the four quadrant tool is useful because it reminds us to be as comprehensive and not just to focus on one of these dimensions to the exclusion of the others. And you use that 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 part of the map to look at the issues of gun violence, gun exactly. control, gun rights, all of that stuff. And right. it's probably the best, you know, I've been really concerned. And I live in the deep south, you know, and I live in very conservative areas, man. I, I think one of the the gifts of integral, and I might have got this from our dear friend Jeff Salzman, is that you should be able to tell somebody at a certain level of development what their beliefs are in a way that they feel seen, respected, and go, yeah, you really understand me. That is a huge project that may help us to uh, continue as a human family if more of us could work on being able to to communicate and not just from a level of manipulation, from a level of deep compassion and deep love and deep respect for each individual and as whole. No, 100%. An integral heart is an empathetic heart and it's a heart that is able to more directly inhabit the perspectives of whoever it is we happen to be talking to, right? Not in this sort of like condescending, oh, you're you're at a traditional level and I've been through that years ago. It's it's not like that. It's actually genuine inhabiting of the heart. And you begin to realize that there is a, a sacred connection, a commonality that exists between us because who you are is still alive in me right now at this moment in critical fundamental ways. And so it clears a space, I think, for more genuine kind of heart-to-heart, eye-to-eye engagements with each other. And the amount of, you know, love and respect and compassion that comes out of that just feels like, you know, these are all scarce resources in today's world, increasingly scarce resources. And whatever tools we can find that help us not only better understand ourselves, but better understand each other, I think is going to be what helps you know, close these gaps between us because we live in a universe, we're told by physicists, where everything is moving apart from everything else, right? Every star in the sky is moving away from every other star in the sky. Space 
continues to expand. And in many ways, I feel like the human species is evolution's response to that as sort of as physical space, you know, causes us to drift farther and farther apart. There's something about the deepening of the heart, right? That begins at a microbial level and then deepens through, you know, insects and fish and small mammals and primates and, you know, eventually to human beings where this depth of heart is kind of pulling this universe back together. And that's, you know, that, that, that to me is the power of integral is that it allows us to more authentically and more capably inhabit each other's heart and figure out though, you know, where we're unique, right. But also where we're the same. And that is, I think, a critical polarity that, um, we have to figure out right now at this sort of chapter of human history. And it feels like that's, that provides both a context and also points to what you, what you're doing with your integral social justice perspective. That is, you are, you are providing a, a necessary distinction so we can see how we're missing each other in and becoming so divided and inflamed over a variety of issues. And by seeing how we're actually talking past each other, we can actually begin to talk to and with each other. Yeah. And I'd love you to say more about the series. Yeah. So, so you know, that I think would be a nice segue into the eight zones of racism that I heard you guys talking about before, which, uh, which I spent a lot of time on and was very, it was, a, it was an important piece of content to me. It was Get indeed, right. yes. Get found, right. found very valuable. And I, I'm not going to get into sort of the weeds of what I mean by eight zones versus four quadrants, but the, the basic idea is that I just described the four quadrants. Each of those quadrants can be looked at from the inside or from the outside. And when we do that, that results in sort of these eight zones. And it occurred to me as I was just sort of tracking the cultural conversation around civil rights, around Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter around you know even questions like the transgender challenges that we have in our culture it became roger as you just said increasingly clear to me that everyone is talking past each other everyone is using the same words but they mean something completely different by those words someone will say something like systemic racism for example and that means something completely different according to what kind of perspective is saying it when a when a when a traditional stage conservative uses a term like that they mean something somewhat different by systemic racism than someone at the postmodern stage at a university for example so what i wanted to do was was kind of put all of these perspectives and these arguments onto the table and see if the four quadrants slash the eight zones can help us better understand the ways that we are talking past each other like can we can we create a frame together where if you are, you know, if you identify as someone, for example, who is woke, right, you will be able to find a piece of yourself in this frame. And then also, if you are coming from Alabama with a traditional set of values, and you've got some very strong feelings about this particular issue, I'm hoping you can find a piece of yourself in this kind of frame. And if we can make room, if we can actually learn a way to honor and acknowledge and include all of these little pieces together, we get a much better picture, not only of the problem, but what we can actually begin to do about it. So it becomes clear to me that like, this was something I talked about, Ken, at great extent, you know, something like systemic racism. One person will say, 
you know, we still have an incredible amount of systemic racism in our system that is creating injustice for, you know, multiple groups of people. And then someone else will counter that by saying, well, what are you talking about? Show me the law that's in the books that says treat this group different than that group. And then they'll say, okay, well, yeah, we got rid of the laws, but there are still, for example, inertias or there's the ways that we talk about, we interpret the law that are still creating these, you know, unjust results. We're still seeing black men imprisoned for drug charges at a you know, higher rate than white men who commit the same crimes at the same rate. How can we talk about that, right? How can we sort of reconcile these sort of conflicting truths? Well, I think this gives us a way to do that. We can acknowledge that like, yes, in this zone, we have reshaped our legislation and our laws and our policies. And that is amazing. That is miraculous. And that is something that should be celebrated, right? By all of us. Like, look how much better we are as a society today than we were 60 years ago, and especially 160 years ago, right? That is something for us to celebrate because the arc of justice continues to bend towards greater equality, greater inclusion, greater compassion. This is, this is really good news, but it's not like it's a black and white story. Like, yes, that's good news that we've addressed that in this particular dimension. But we have to look at, for example, the inertias that were created from things like, you know, redlining policies from decades ago that are still having consequences on people today. There is this, these sort of, these self-sustaining feedback loops that existed from previous eras that are still, those patterns are still with us today, even though we've reshaped sort of the laws and the policies that surround them. The laws and the policies aren't putting an end to these patterns. So we're still seeing themselves play out and we're seeing all sorts of injustices as a result. So that means- We used to say you can't legislate righteousness. That's yeah, that's 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 totally that's that's 100% right. So this is just like this is just looking at a single quadrant, like a conflict that exists in, in a single quadrant. Now let's unfold that into all the other into the, you know, behavioral, how people are actually acting versus intentional, how people are thinking about these issues, all the identity issues that have come online the last decade or so. And then, of course, at our cultural issue. And that's where we'll ask questions like, you know, when it comes to gun violence, like, do we make a room for fatherless families and the effect that that has on people's behaviors and where they find themselves in the justice system? And it's just like, yes, absolutely. We want to make room for that. We just can't reduce everything to it. Right. So let's put all the factors on the table as we possibly can and then arrange them in an understandable way so that if Wokey McWokerson walks in the room or, you know, a conservative cowboy walks in the room. You 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 can engage with you can inhabit both of those perspectives and hopefully find some common ground just by saying what you're saying is true. It's limited to this kind of sphere of our reality. What you're saying is true and it's limited to this sphere of reality. Let's sort of pick up both spheres at the same time and figure out a new set of solutions that doesn't reduce this massively complex reality that we find ourselves in to these sort of oversimplified platitudes. The more we can do that and the more we can make room for each other's perspective, I think, again, that, that, that's, how, that's how you go about solving the kind of political tribalization and polarization that is so prominent today. Beautiful. And I think what you're giving voice to and what the integral vision 
aims for is several things that you've you've done several things there, Corey. You've pointed to necessary distinctions that people using the same terms but referring to actually different aspects of the issues. They're speaking they're speaking from quite different cultural value systems, mm-hmm. both of which have some may have some value. And talking from quite different perspectives, even from different developmental perspectives. And as you said earlier, everyone, one aspect, one presupposition of integral is everyone is right, but only partially right. That's right. Or I love Ken's phrase, no one's smart enough to be 100% wrong. That's right. <laughs> so, so, and I'm instruct in the, in Ken's work is building this theory and in your application of the importance of making distinctions, of recognizing that the same word can refer to, sometimes as in with spirituality, a dozen different things. And as long as those aren't made distinct and separate and identified clearly, we just bash our heads arguing and suffer from the delusion that if we just argue hard enough, we'll convince the other person, whereas the opposite is true. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with all that. I think some of the good news here is, and this gets back to the earlier question about like sort of what is Integral's place in history? What is the future of Integral? You know, one of the observations I have is it feels like in a lot of ways we are kind of blindly and sometimes clumsily kind of stumbling our way towards Integral, sort of without even knowing Ken's work or, you know, any of that. We're 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 getting there kind of naturally and organically. And I think of something like, for example, the transgender conversation that we've been having in this culture just over and over for the last, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight years. And one of the things that I appreciate about this conversation, as contentious as it often is, is that we are just kind of naturally finding our way into these exact distinctions. Like we're beginning to distinguish the fact that like, oh, you can have a sex that's different than your gender. And you can have an identity that takes on different pieces of your culturally associated gender or your biologically determined sex. And oh, we can look at the different sort of social roles that have, you know, that have evolved over history for these different sexes and genders and identities. Right. So there's something about that conversation that's like it's almost naturally sorting itself out into the four quadrants without someone like a Ken Wilber being like, oh, that's upper left. Oh, that's that's lower right. It's just, again, we're kind of stumbling there naturally. And I find that so, you know, one of the things I love about that is is it helps remind me that this territory's real. Do you know what I, do you know what I mean? Like, like Integral years ago was the only game in town. I had to constantly ask myself, like, okay, is this, is this real? Is this are we describing real territory together? Or is this just another intellectual pursuit? And we'll actually find out 20 years from now that like the territory is very different, right? But there's something about this, the fact that we are naturally finding our way into these kinds of uh, understandings, and the fact that we continue to see things like metamodernism and critical realism evolving sort of in our adjacency just kind of doubles down to me the the idea that the territory actually is real that if i put one foot down in front of the other there's something solid there and i think we're still figuring out what that means we're still figuring out what that territory actually looks like even though ken's given us these amazing maps i 
I think 50 years from now, we'll, we'll have a whole other set of observations and distinctions to kind of add into Ken's work. And the territory is going to be that much more real because of it. But a really cool feeling, almost like, you know, hey, in a lot of ways, in a lot of really important ways, culture and society are kind of catching up, right? I'm thinking back 20 years ago when, you know, you didn't have things like meditation and mindfulness training in schools. It's in my kid's school now. It's amazing. You still had some trepidation even around like, you know, finding therapy. People with therapists, there was still some shame around that. I think that's completely evaporated over the last 20 years. So there's a lot of ways that we're just kind of naturally finding our way there. And the good news is when people are ready collectively to sort of pop into these integral stages, there's already a huge amount of groundwork waiting for them through Ken's work, through the work of all of us individually who are contributing to this integral project, whether in the name of integral or you know things like, again, metamodernism, et cetera. There is a tremendous amount of work already established, and it's still just scratching the surface of what I think the integral project can be and will be. But it's encouraging to me that people who are stumbling into this territory for the first time can find the resources that have emerged that didn't exist when I got into this stuff 25, 30 years ago. We were discussing earlier, Roger, you mentioned that you wanted to talk with or ask Corey about the evolution of, of the integral project. You've certainly been in the center of the ring and ringside, I mean, most of the time with this as you have, Roger. So so how do you feel from, you know, what have you seen in the project? And I love the way you named that. In, in the last 20 years and what seems to be happening now as its enfoldment of this thing continues? Great question. And I, I myself kind of trying to rifle through my, my interior kind of file cabinet of memories because I've, you know, we've seen a few things. We've seen many, we've seen multiple phases of the integral project as we know it today evolving over time. And I've worked with so many, I've had the, the privilege of working with so many different, just absolutely wonderful and fascinating people over these 20 years. And we've seen some casualties too. I think that one of the things that you know, I often talk about is how integral is often sort of enacted as a symbol of wholeness in a certain kind of way. And oftentimes these sorts of symbols attract their opposite. So we will often get, you know, a fair amount of brokenness gets attracted to these symbols of wholeness. I mean, in fact, I was one of those people. I mean, that's one of the reasons why Ken's work stuck out so much to me when I first got introduced to it as a young man was because it offered me a way to fix myself, to pull myself together, to sort of, you know, it felt like Pinocchio trying to figure out how to become a real boy. You know, and integral kind of gave me gave me that path. It's, it's it's been extraordinary. It's been sometimes tragic. Some of the stories that we've seen in this space, but you know what's incredible to me is is looking back twenty years ago. You now again, as I mentioned earlier, I I I made a decision after devouring Ken's work for about two years. I made the decision to just kind of risk it all by moving out to Boulder, Colorado, just to see if I could make contact with them, get involved, you know, and this, and this was all pre-Integral Institute and Integral Naked and all that. Nothing. It was, it was the Integral Dark Ages. And I felt lonely. I, you know, I was in a position where it was like, here I had found this material that meant so much and ev like literally everything to me. And if I ever wanted to talk about it with anyone else, I would have to like teach them the model, right? 
then I'm not talking to them about the model. I'm talking to them about my interpretation of the model that I just taught them. And, you know, plus people would get kind of annoyed when I would just keep talking about stages and quadrants over and over again. So I, you know, I felt really lonely. And this to me was almost a pilgrimage to try to find first to try to find people like myself who I could, you know, finally be myself with. Right? It was something I never really had growing up was the sense that like I could be myself with other people. That always kind of came different, you know, in a, in a difficult way to me. But second, to do everything I can to make sure no one ever needs to feel lonely in this space again. And that was one of my, you know, one of the really strong impulses that drove me to not just wanting to meet and hang out with Ken, but like, I want to build something with him so that people don't have to feel quite so alienated and feel like they have to go through this whole, you know, integral transformation, whatever that happens to mean to you. I don't want people to feel like they need to go through that alone because there's just so many things that can go wrong if we don't have the right peer groups and the right support systems and, the, you know, the right kinds of accountability structures with each other. And so that, that became really important to me. So that led me to move to Boulder, Colorado. And I basically, you know, showed up on Ken's doorstep, like a puppy dog in the rain, <laughs> you know, can, can you invite me in please? And, and, you know, the guy invited me in, which was, you know, I met him a year before actually got involved, you know, professionally with his work, gave some of the story before, but I, I ended up working his wife's idol shower and ended up going to his house and catering his I'll always remember, I met Ken Wilber's father before I met Ken Wilber himself, which was always kind of interesting to me. And then it wasn't until a year and a year and a half later when basically announced the formation of what was then an integral youth group. And fortunately, I had made a couple friends in Boulder that had more connection with Ken, and they invited me to go to Ken's loft. And that's where it all started. I hope you loved that part of our conversation with Corey Dubow as much as we did. Stay tuned for part three. Today's episode was brought to you by iWake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger and the Deep Transformation team.